All right, so today's hard saying is one of the toughest things that Jesus said during his first advent. And next Sunday, we're going to jump into what I believe to be the toughest thing that he said. Christians have struggled with this statement for ages. But yet again, this statement is tough for us because we are quick to cut through the knot instead of untying it to see what God has for us. Modern Bible readers make this mistake time and time again. We make the Bible too much about ourselves and not enough about God. Do you agree with that? We're quick to get to application without doing the work of discovering God's interpretation. One of the things that we do as Bible readers is to let the original context, the original audience, the original occasion to speak and to drive what Jesus is getting at for us in application. So when Jesus speaks, we have to find out who is he speaking to? Why was he speaking to them in this way? And then, after we do the work of interpretation, we can say, how did it apply to Christians in the first century, the 16th century, the 21st century here in Branchton? As Christians, I think many of us can acknowledge that we have struggled at some point with assurance along the way, right? That's why we did the assurance study through Abraham last fall. We struggle with questions like, are we really Christians? And how do we even know? And unfortunately, the church hasn't been a safe enough space for people throughout the ages to come and to vocalize these questions and these doubts, as if there's something wrong with doubting. But we must remember that Jesus had no consternation for doubting Thomas when he said, let me see his stigmata. Paul tells us in Galatians 5, that there are fruits by which we can know that we are Christians. This fall, I'll give you a little sneak peek, we are going to do a sermon series on the fruits of the Spirit. But we don't know we are Christians in the way that American Christianity has taught us. It's not walking down an aisle when you were 15 years old. It wasn't getting baptized at youth camp. These are not the greatest indications or proofs that you are a Christian. The greatest indication that you are a Christian is the Holy Spirit indwelling you. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is meant to dispel your insecurities and your anxieties and your frustrations. Because here's the thing. Your assurance and my assurance is not wrapped up and bound to what we say or what we do. Our assurance is found in what Jesus has already said and what he has already done. Amen? That's, that's the tension of assurance right there. Not in what we say and do, but what Christ has said and done. We are going to find out today that the people that Jesus addresses in Mark 3 have totally rejected God. They appear to be religious because they show up publicly and say and do the right things. And because they are in positions of power. But they're empty on the inside. And the proof of this is their hard heart towards Jesus. And that's where we're going today. Let's get to our proposition. We're going to see this truth. I'm going to see it most in application. That Christians extend forgiveness to others by experiencing the Holy Spirit's work in them. So let's get to that question. Can a Christian lose their salvation? 
We studied and answered this question last fall on our Wednesday gatherings through our Safe and Sound series. Can you do something so blasphemous, so grievous, that it forfeits your salvation? Now, I'm not quite sure how you feel about this, but to me, to your pastor, this is a matter of first importance. This isn't just something for the academic or for the classroom. This is when life is tough, when life is hard, when there's nothing, it feels like there's nothing left. This is the most precious truth out there. I cannot think of anything more essential than thinking and feeling rightly about salvation. We believe, if you have not gathered this yet, I can at least say, your pastor believes, and I'm trying to invest this into this church the last seven years, that a person's coming to, staying in, and growing in Jesus is ultimately dependent on the free will, sovereign grace of God, and not ours. But Christians have historically struggled against this, and have pushed against this. Christians historically have struggled to believe that what they say and do determines their final destination. This puts them in the seat of God. Fortunately, there have always been Christians, from Paul to Augustine to the Reformers, and even more still today, who call the church back time and time again to reform, to reformation, to call back to the scriptures that our salvation is completely and ultimately dependent on what Jesus has done for us and on what we can do for ourselves. So here's the teaching this morning. A genuine Christian cannot say or do anything to forfeit their salvation. A Christian, the moment they are justified by God's free gift of grace in faith alone, in Christ alone, they receive the Spirit of Jesus inside of them permanently to indwell them forever. And this is a lifelong action. Because of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, the genuine Christian cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Only non-Christians can. And the proof of this is what the Christian does with their anger and with their bitterness that sometimes creeps into their hearts. That's a teaching, but i got to show it to you in the scriptures, right? Because it doesn't matter what pastor has to say. So let's jump into our first point. So with these difficult words of Jesus, we're going to see that your extension of forgiveness proves your experience of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. I want to talk about forgiveness for a moment. And I want to give you, I was searching on the internet this week because I wanted to find non-Christian, clinical, academic definitions of forgiveness. And you will see that even though they are non-Christian, how it's laced with the gospel. Because forgiveness is God's idea. Johns Hopkins, so here's the clinical definition. Johns Hopkins defines forgiveness as an active process in which you make a conscious decision to let go of negative feelings, and this is it, whether the person deserves it or not. Do you notice how that definition is just laced with God's unconditional grace? We ask, how can a human being do this, right? How can a person actively let go of hurt, and wrongdoing when that person deserves it. What they said was true. What they did was true. The hurt was real. 
How can a person just let that go unconditionally? This is proof of the existence of God's grace. In addition to God's justice, but that's not what today is about. Johns Hopkins goes on to say that your emotional, your mental, and your physical health is dependent upon this deeply spiritual activity. That's Johns Hopkins. No claim in the race for Christianity. Berkeley, I looked up an academic one. Berkeley defines forgiveness as this. The conscious and deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment and vengeance towards someone. Even secular academic institutions like Berkeley sees the relationship between forgiveness and resentment. And paralleling, the longer that you allow resistant, the resentment to stick around, the harder it becomes for you to extend forgiveness. And once again, Berkeley is not a Christian institution. But this is just screaming Bible and biblical wisdom. The longer resentment sticks around, the less likely you are to extend forgiveness. We talked a little bit about this on Wednesday night, right? About not letting the sun go down in your anger. I love how those Wednesdays and Sundays connect, right? It's a God thing. It's always been a God thing. As good as these two definitions are, they fall short. They fall short because they cannot give to the non-Christian, the academic, the clinician who's studying to help people the why behind forgiveness. Only Christianity and Christianity alone can provide a sufficient why to this. Now, Johns Hopkins and Berkeley, they'd say something like this. You do it for yourself. That's the why. So this is circular reasoning. You do it for yourself because if you don't forgive, it'll wreak havoc on your mind, your heart, your body. That is true. It's true. But it isn't the motivation behind forgiveness. It's the effect of forgiveness. That's putting the cart before the horse. They do this because they cannot acknowledge that Jesus is God and that the scriptures are true. So they get close to the truth and they just miss it. Only Christianity can give us the true sufficient answer for why we forgive. So how can a person forgive another who has wronged so deeply and then that other person believes they've done nothing wrong? Have you been there? I've been there. This is where culture falls short. And this is exactly where the kingdom of God shines brightest. The why behind forgiveness is that this is exactly what God has done for you in Jesus. That's the why behind forgiveness. Jesus took on your sins. Jesus took on your offense that you've done to his father when you thought you did nothing wrong. Jesus is going to teach us today that the offer of forgiveness to others is based on your personal experience of forgiveness with God. So here's the context so we can truly get the hard saying. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Now, once again, let's think back to gather. We didn't get to finish our teaching on Wednesday night, right? Because we talked so much about things like Sabbath. And here we are. It's not a coincidence. It's a God thing. How Sundays and Wednesdays are meant to give you the complete picture of God's teaching at Heritage. This yet again broke Jewish law. But obviously not God's law. Because the Son of God healed on the Sabbath. That says something about a 24-hour literal period where you're supposed to do nothing. This is worse than
than last week's hard saying where the Pharisees were mad at Jesus' disciples because they didn't wash their hands before they... This is a cardinal sin right here. Jesus has violated the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is in direct violation of cultural Jewish law built around the creation story and Sabbath. Jesus can do this because he is the Sabbath. The Sabbath isn't a day. The Sabbath is a person. God rested on the seventh day of creation, not because he was tired, but to enjoy all that he has done, all that he is. And let's ask this question. Above all things, who does God the Father, or what does God the Father enjoy the most? The answer is Jesus. And we looked at that recently on a Wednesday night. The baptism of Jesus proves it. Because as Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, and the Father's voice says, This is my well-loved, my beloved Son, in whom I am most pleased. Right? Sabbath is about Jesus. Jesus is Lord of Sabbath. Jesus can do this and more on a literal Sabbath day for Jewish culture because he is the highest authority. He gets to define what can and cannot be done on any day because all the days are his. This created deep hatred, animosity, and vengeance in the hearts of the religious elites. And this hatred of Jesus was not dealt with in a healthy way, in a biblical way that the Old Testament would teach a good Jew to handle anger and hatred and vengeance. It actually led them to conspire and plan the murder of Jesus. Now remember last week and last week's difficult saying. Murder doesn't make somebody a sinner. A person murders because they are a sinner. It's not the outside that made that person a sinner. It's what's on the inside coming out that proves that they are a sinner. It's the deadness of a person's heart that leads them to murder or to disobedience to parents. Stephen Paul brings it into one of the lists of sins, right? So after this, Jesus withdraws from the scribes and the Pharisees. He heals on the Sabbath. He withdraws from people. But then, of course, like we notice all the time, large crowds follow him. Jesus continues to heal people, specifically the demon-possessed. This is critical for us to understand about the context. Jesus is healing, exercising demons from people. Jesus returns home. He's up in Galilee. And even more people find him and bring to them those who are hurt and sick and demon-possessed. And he heals them too. And the scribes come down. They always said down is up and up is down. That's what the ancients did. They come down from Jerusalem and they find Jesus and they say this to him in verse 22. Take a look at it. In verse 22 they say, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And then they say, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. The scribes accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed. What is up is down. What is right is wrong. They see truth upside down. Just like American culture, they see truth upside down too. What is right and wrong, and what is wrong is right. 
So this is how Jesus is able to do the miraculous. Jesus can cast out demons because he's possessed by the ruler of demons, Beelzebul. Now, the goal of today's heart saying is it to teach demonology. I don't know if that is an interest of you to, to discover what the Bible says about demons or angels. But there's a theology for that. And maybe one day we can do that if you so constrain me to do it. But you can at least see that, at least according to the perspective of these first century Jews, Beelzebul is a prince of demons, a ruler of demons. Scribes conclude the greatest of untruths as truth. The reason? This is what unresolved anger, unresolved bitterness, unresolved hatred does to the human heart. So Jesus, in response, tells us a parable. Satan doesn't disrupt his kingdom and his work to prove that he's Satan. A kingdom doesn't destroy itself to prove to the world that the kingdom is powerful. America's civil war wasn't fought to prove its strength, but it proved our brokenness as a people, right? Kingdoms divided against itself don't stand. No kingdom proves it's powerful by destroying itself. So here's today's hard saying. That was context. Here's the hard saying. Verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. The first thing that you need to see is that this hard saying is actually about forgiveness. Do you see that? The mistake that people make because of their lack of assurance, because of their fears, because of their insecurities, is to go straight to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And because they do this, they neglect what Jesus is actually saying about the beauty of forgiveness. The second thing that you need to see is that Jesus is saying this in response to the scribes for calling him Beelzebul, for calling the Son of God a prince of demons, for seeing truth upside down. They see heresy as truth because of hate in the hearts. So the mistake that people make is to think that the modern day reader of any time period is the actual audience of Jesus' statements. That is not necessarily true. And I pray that's a little bit freeing for you right now that Jesus' intended audience is not necessarily you when he said this, but the scribes. Therefore, we must avoid the tendency to make Bible verses to immediately be about us. It's about God. It's about his son. It's about his son completing that which they decided they were going to do before Genesis 1. Jesus says here, all sins, all blasphemies we utter will be forgiven. This is the grounds of my hope, and I pray this is the grounds of your hope in this life. There is no sin of yours and no sin of mine that Jesus did not take on the cross. And one of the things that I am beginning to relish in these past several days, not just our sins that he identified with and suffered through on the cross, but also our sorrows. Amen? Jesus' suffering on the cross atoned for all your sins and whatever blasphemies that his people have uttered. As a Christian, biblically, 
God has told us that you have a new heart. You have a new spirit, his spirit in you. But as a Christian, we know that we are caught and stuck in old flesh. We will still sin and we will still fall short, right? So we ask, how can Jesus give us so much hope that all of our sins, all our blasphemes can be forgiven because we are Christians? And here's the answer. It's because he gives the spirit of Jesus to indwell us. It's because the Holy Spirit is inside of us. Mystical, yes. Inexplicable, yes. Falsehood, no. Reality. And I want us to revisit two key passages from our Savor preaching series through the Gospel of John. The first is John 14, verses 16 and 17, where Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you, how long? Forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you, and then for these disciples, future for Pentecost, and will be in you. The Spirit of Jesus is the helper of the Christian. The Holy Spirit is our helper by being with us forever. The Holy Spirit is our helper by abiding in you forever. And specifically here, Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit indwells us to teach us truth. Because we think things are right that are truly wrong. We call things that are fun and cool that are really sin. We see things upside down. That's why Paul says that the work of the Spirit in Romans 12 is the renewing of the mind. So we see things inverted, and the Holy Spirit puts them back in proper perspective. He's the Spirit of truth. And Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is rejected by non-Christians. And it doesn't matter if they're religious. It doesn't matter if they attend synagogue in the first century or if they attend the American church today. Non-Christians reject the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us to forgive. Now take a look at John 16. Here's a second thing that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit that I want us to revisit. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That's why Jesus ascended, and then the day of Pentecost happened. And here's a critical. And he, when he comes, what does he do? He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus teaches us here that the Holy Spirit is our helper because he convicts us of sin. That is one of the ways, this is crazy, I know, but one of the ways that he is our help, our advocate, and our comforter is because he convicts us of our sins. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to convict us when we fall short because you and I see truth as error and error as truth. We see things upside down. But back to our hard saying, Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So we have to ask, what therefore is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? 
And here it is. It is the total rejection of the person, the presence, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of another human being. It is determined opposition to the truth the Holy Spirit teaches us about ourselves, about the people in our lives, and this world. Now think back to the scribes with that in mind. The scribes were in a position of power to teach correct things about God. That's why they're in a position of power. They're the ones that translated one manuscript of the Jewish Bible into another. They memorized it. So they were called on their society to teach rightly what God's word said. That was their position. That was their role. And the scribes intentionally led people astray from God by rejecting Jesus. When the scribes called Jesus Beelzebul, it was simply confirming the anger, the hatred, the animosity in their hearts. Because Jesus says, for out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Calling Jesus Beelzebul proved that though they were in a position of power as a mouthpiece for God, ironically, they have never experienced God. They have never experienced forgiveness. Their words revealed their hearts that is full of hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness towards Jesus. They rejected Jesus as Messiah, as the ultimate teacher, because they wanted to be Messiah, because they wanted to be the ultimate determinator of truth, which I believe is a struggle of every single human being, not just scribes of the Jewish culture. We all want to be the final determinator of truth in our lives. And that's why we see things upside down. When you want to be the one who ultimately determines truth, you replace the Holy Spirit with yourself. And if you don't believe this is a modern, sophisticated American problem, just think about the American Constitution and how there are such fights in our country between do you interpret that Constitution literally or does it mean whatever we want it to mean today? Because the people today want to be in control. They don't want that document to govern everything that happens in this country. They want to put themselves on top of the document, right? I think we have several Supreme Court justices that believe in literalism, as I think every Christian should believe in literalism. But anyway, this isn't governmental politics today. Jesus is saying that these scribes, these particular scribes who called him Beelzebul, were committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is the original meaning and context of this hard saying. The scribes pretended to be teachers of God because they were in a position of power. And when anyone would challenge this, their hearts are revealed. Now let's get to our final verse, where Mark simply sums it up. Because the scribes were saying that Jesus has an unclean spirit. Jesus said the scribes committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because they said that he had an unclean spirit, specifically Beelzebul had possessed him. And that is the opposite of truth. He is not the prince of demons. He is the prince of God. He's the prince of peace. He's the Messiah. Beelzebul isn't with Jesus. 
because we know just a little bit before this in Mark 3, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism. Not Beelzebul, the Holy Spirit himself. These scribes see the work of the Holy Spirit as the work of Beelzebul. Do you see that? That's how we untie the knot. Scribes are teachers of God's word, yet they rejected God's word, ironically enough, because they rejected Jesus. Rejecting Jesus is rejecting scripture. And, which I've said to some people here throughout the years, and they're no longer here, rejecting scripture is rejecting Jesus, and rejecting Jesus is rejecting scripture. You can't disassociate the two. When you reject Jesus, you reject the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is my spirit, the spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to teach you truth about Jesus and to convict you when you fall short of it. So blasphemy is the willful, determined opposition of truth. God's truth. Christians in the ultimate sense cannot do this. Therefore, genuine Christians cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And the greatest proof that you and I cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit is God's work of forgiveness in our lives. First experience in Jesus, and then extended to those in our lives, beginning with the church outward. The greatest proof of God's forgiveness in our lives is the cross of his Son. Scribes harbored unforgiveness in their hearts for Jesus because he saw them for who they truly were. His presence made them angry and bitter and resentful and hatred. And it's not just the scribes. I believe this happens any time God's word is accurately being taught. It brings up feelings in some people of hatred and anger and bitterness towards God, his word, and the people speaking it. It led them to unforgiveness in their hearts, which proved they never experienced forgiveness in the first place. So we ask as we move to application, if a genuine Christian cannot blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, what can we do? Let's get to application. We're going to see that you are to embrace the Holy Spirit's work in you by living it out in front of others. The Holy Spirit's work in our lives points us to Jesus. That's why he is indwelling us, to point us to Jesus, to point us to his word, because he is the word of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who changes our minds and our hearts about Jesus. We once thought he was a fairy tale. Now he's the centerpiece of our faith. The Holy Spirit indwells us as our help to stay in Jesus and to grow in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit does this by accurately teaching the scriptures to us. He does this by consoling us with the scriptures. And he does this by convicting us with the scriptures. That's why we've often talked about that preaching and teaching, sometimes it's a sword and it cuts and it hurts, right? We've often like lamented, why does it hurt so much on Sundays and Wednesdays, right? Because it consoles by convicting because of the nature of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, the genuine Christian cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit for he abides in us and is the central component of our growth as Christians. However, the Christian can grieve the Holy Spirit. 
and that's the topic of our application. As Christians, it should be our aim to embrace the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and not to grieve him. So we're going to turn to Paul for a moment. I think it was Terry who brought up Ephesians 4 on Wednesday. And I said I'd already written my manuscript, and we were going to Ephesians 4 in application. So here we are. I love how God's word connects yet again, three times already from Wednesdays to Sundays. So here's what Paul says about it. In Ephesians 4, verses 30 to 32, Paul writes, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He introduced that in chapter 1, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, he says, based on this, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In verse 30, we see the call to not grieve the Holy Spirit. It's plain as day. He doesn't say, Christian, don't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Therefore, it's the heart's attitude of every Christian for this. We do not want to live in such a way that dishonors what Jesus has done for us in the cross, in the resurrection, in his ascension, what he gave to us at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave his spirit as a pledge as a down payment, that he's going to finish what he started in us. The Holy Spirit indwells us as that seal that marks us out for the day of redemption, not just when you and I will be redeemed, but all creation, even constellations and black holes and puppy dogs, will be reordered and renewed for eternity. So we ask, how can a Christian grieve the Holy Spirit of God? This, again, is a matter of first importance. If God is doing a real work in us, and if we are truly Christians, we have the desire to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in us. So how can we? We grieve the Holy Spirit by not living out what the Holy Spirit has put into us. Now, the whole paragraph of Ephesians 4 tells us how we can grieve the heart of God but I just focused on verses 31 and 32 because it has everything to do with forgiveness. Do you see that? So there's more to this about grieving. It's not just this exclusively. There's more to grieving the heart of God. But for application, we're just talking about forgiveness to connect it back to Mark 3. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we let bitterness and anger get its best in us. And when it gets in the way of treating people, Christian or non-Christian, in the way that God treats people in Christ. That, in a nutshell, is how we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So you know what that means? Your pastor has grieved the Holy Spirit of God. And I hope that you have the boldness to acknowledge that today. Because every single one of us, whether we've been walking with Jesus for an hour or decades, we have let something get in the way of treating others, Christian or non-Christian, in the way that God has treated us in Christ, right? We're all on equal playing field, right? 
This was the problem of the Pharisees. Their hatred, their bitterness bred unforgiveness in their hearts for Jesus. But true religion is forgiving others, not just in the way that Berkeley or Johns Hopkins alludes to, but specifically offering forgiveness to others as a reflection of the forgiveness that you've experienced in the cross and in Jesus. True religion is forgiving others just as God forgave you in Christ. So let's make this applicable to where we are 2023 here at Heritage. There are three things we're focusing on this year, right? We will love people of Jesus with the love of Jesus until the return of Jesus. How relevant is today's preaching to that, right? This is our first layer of proving that we are Christians, but how we live and move and breathe in a church, in a church family. Because how can we forgive those out there who could care a flip about Jesus and the cross if we cannot forgive those whom the cross and the resurrection means everything, right? Love the, the people of Jesus with the love of Jesus until the return of Jesus. Paul calls Christians to be kind and tender-hearted to other Christians. We are to forgive them as God has forgiven us. That's how we love the people of Jesus with the love of Jesus. We are the hands and the feet of Christ's forgiveness to others, the Christian and the non-Christian. We are going to spend time with people who are not like us. And that means we must put ourselves in a position to be around non-Christians, people who do not value Jesus the way that we do. And we have to be around them and engage them in such a way that just because they say something negatively about our God, we don't jump on them. Jesus jumped on the religious hypocrites, not on those who needed a physician. And as we do this, we model the kindness and the tenderness that we've experienced in Jesus, that they have never experienced before. And then we are to open our lives to invest in the church and for the church to invest in us. And we have to acknowledge this heritage. Opening our lives is hard. i got to be honest. I am tired of crying in your company the past year and a half. It's hard, but I'm human. Opening our lives is hard because it means vulnerability. And it means we're probably going to get hurt by someone in this room. And that's okay. Because Jesus already died for it. Which means you don't have to pursue justice because justice already fell on him. And then for the non-Christian, justice will fall on them in the eschaton. And he can do something far worse than we can do. Remember when Jesus says, be afraid, not of those who can hurt the body, but the one who can destroy both body and soul and hell. The justice of God is far better than what any Supreme Court can decide. I pray that we are not like the scribes who let anger and bitterness result in unforgiveness. We embrace the Holy Spirit to work in our lives when we live out the heart of Jesus for both the Christian and for the non-Christian. Jesus wants us to live out his kind and tender heart to all kinds of people. This means 
demonstrating to others, the Christian and the non-Christian alike, the forgiveness that we have found in him. This is the Holy Spirit's work in the Christian. The experience of forgiveness is proven by how you demonstrate that forgiveness to others. That's why I was just reading in Matthew this morning about a parable of a king who wanted to settle debts. Did you read it? And this king brought somebody before him who owed him this insurmountable amount. And the person's like, give me some time. He pleaded. And the king was moved to compassion. And he forgave the debt. And then that man went to found somebody who had a smaller debt and just wrangled him. And that king found out. What was Jesus' point? It was all about forgiveness. That what you truly have experienced with your king, you experience with people who have done lesser things to you than what you have done to your king. So I ask, do you love the forgiveness that Jesus has extended to you in the cross? Then show that kind of love to the Christian and the non-Christian. Now you may ask, Pastor Joe, what should I do when I grieve the Holy Spirit? I've already told you I've been there. I know that I've grieved him who died for me. You may say, I had the opportunity to be kind, but I was wronged, I was hurt, I allowed that hurt to fester into unforgiveness. And this is where repentance comes in. American Christianity has taught you wrongly that repentance is something you do at an altar call when you're five years old, or at a church camp when you're 15 years old. Like repentance is step one of this thing called being a Christian. When Jesus says, no, 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 repentance is so vibrant and necessary to every day of being the Christian that I'm going to put the Holy Spirit inside of you as a convictor of sin. That's how important repentance is. Repentance is the daily habit of the Christian because the Holy Spirit is our helper who convicts us of sin. So when you grieve the Holy Spirit of God, you own it. You don't hide like Adam and Eve. You don't cover your nakedness with fig coverings. You feel the weight of the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings. And then you bring that conviction to the cross. Because Jesus already died for it. So that experience of feeling that you've wronged isn't meant for justice. Isn't meant for wrath. It's meant for growth. That's why you're feeling it. But you'll never grow if you don't allow yourself to feel that your life killed the Son of God. You experience the kind and tender heart of Jesus who hung on the cross and took your punishments. The scribes couldn't do this. But I pray that God changes those who are gathered here to heritage and gives them a heart for this. The Holy Spirit will show you not wrath, not justice, but the kind and tender heart of Jesus time and time again when you grieve him. And when you experience this again, you'll find yourself forgiving others for lesser things that were done to you because you rejoice in the love of God despite the greater things you did to his son. And I'll say that one more time and then we'll pray. And when you experience this again, 
you'll find yourself forgiving others for lesser things that were done to you because you rejoice in the love of God despite the greater things you have done to Jesus.